Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of the Here's the Thing Though podcast. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today and I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Yo. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I'm good. I'm fine. I said this last week, but it doesn't feel like it's been two weeks since we were last recording. It just came out of nowhere again. Yeah. I don't know where the time went. It's so strange. I feel like, I mean, the weather's been kind of bad. True. And so we just kind of haven't really done anything. Like, That's true. Yeah. There's nothing to, I mean, we like, we watch movies and stuff, but it doesn't feel like we're doing things that are out of the ordinary for us. So it doesn't feel like any time has gone by. Because yeah, I just work. Yeah. And then there's a two-day weekend in which I catch up on chores and maybe watch a movie. And then the week starts again. So on, so forth. (laughs) Yeah. So I have nothing of substantial kind of note to discuss. Uh, I've been busy with uni. That's been occupying my life for the past two weeks. But what about you? Anything more interesting, I hope? No, I feel like I've just watched a few movies. Um, We can get into those in our recommendations slash dissuasion section. Shall we just move into that? Well, we did go to the, sh- the shark exhibition yes. at the museum. That's one thing we did. Yeah, and that was really nice. I do love sharks. I actually, like, I wrote an article, I mean, weeks ago, just like a really random article, like, as part of my daily job at Pedestrian about, like, sharks and how they're getting bigger in certain parts of the world because they're just, like, there's new shark protections and stuff, which mean they're just thriving, slaying, not literally, maybe literally, but cute, chunky sharks. And I got so many emails from random people who read the article who just wanted to tell me they love sharks. Oh, and for real? it was yeah. really cute. I was like, the shark-loving community, the shark fan club is wholesome as fuck. <laughs> like, I write lots of articles about lots of random things. And, mm. you know, rarely do you get positive emails. Some, what frequently you get negative ones. But, like... Many people for this one specific article, they just love sharks and they just wanted to tell me that they love sharks. Yeah. Like it wasn't even a, let's talk about sharks. It was just a, I just want to tell you that I love sharks. Maybe like, people in the shark loving community don't really have a place to express that love. So when they see an article, they just need to. Yeah. Like it's like, this is my opportunity. Yeah. We can have this mutual interest. It was really wholesome. So people love sharks, which is nice because I, I mean, I love sharks. I never, ever want to meet one ever. I'm not the kind of person who would ever want to go like in those cages or like swimming with shut. No, thank you. They're I a lot bigger them. than I expected. <laughs> I feel like I should have known this from primary school biology. But yeah. when we were at the exhibition and they had the life-size models, I'm like, they're that big. Yeah. No wonder we're so scared of them. Yeah, they, they'll eat you. <laughs> yeah, they're freaky as hell. <laughs> My God. I think they're very cool, but yeah, I don't want to be one. I'm not that much of an enthusiast. Would you recommend <laughs> exhibition? Yeah, I would. Okay. I would. Well, Maybe we'll seamlessly transition into uh, recommendations. I was going uh, to do that. That's why. I- Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Like, <laughs> do you want to say it? Speaking of recommendations. Oh, yes. Let's talk about the recommendations for this That's fortnight. a great idea. Do you have anything you want to <laughs> recommend or unrecommend or, or, dissuade? or dissuade our listeners? Yes. So 
a few of you on Instagram asked me to watch Heartbreak High, which is the new Netflix reboot. Before I watched it, I was a bit late to the scene, so I only just finished it a few days ago. But there was a lot of really great kind of commentary about it. I know people really loved it. The only thing I really knew about it before I watched it, because I have not seen the original Heartbreak High, was just that like the fashion is lit and the cast is diverse. And I only knew this because my entertainment editor was like interviewing a bunch of the Heartbreak High people before the show's release. And so... Like, I just kind of knew about it. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, my God, this is so fucking good. Like, I'm so glad people asked me to watch it because I don't think I would have got around to it. Like, I was assuming it was going to have, like, euphoria vibes and I have never watched euphoria and don't care to because I don't like teen shows that, like, are super heavy. Mm, You know, like Skins. I think it's Skins and stuff, which I never loved. So I wasn't keen. But then I watched it and it is delightful. It is, if I had a word to describe it, I think it would be delightful. I feel like it kind of feels like Australia's answer to sex education. I was going to say, on the spectrum of sex education to euphoria, where does it sit? Uh, in the middle, but closer to sex education. Right. Because it has, like, you know, a lot of drugs and sex, but I think sex education handled those kinds of things so lightly. Mm. It was always very fun. And euphoria is kind of the opposite end of that, where it like really likes to delve into trauma and awful things. And I feel like Heartbreak High is a really healthy balance of like some heavy scenes or themes, but a lot of it is super lighthearted as it should be. And it was so fun that even when there are scenes that are heavy, you don't feel like super triggered by them because the rest of it is so just lovely. It was such a great depiction of, I think, Australian youth as somebody who never, ever feels represented by any Australian media because it's always like white stuff for people. Mm-hmm. It was really great. Like the main character is played by somebody who, you know, has like Indian heritage and the cast is like ethnically diverse diverse in sexuality, diverse in gender. One of the main characters has autism and is played by an autistic actor, which I think is really great. And that actor was quite heavily involved in the creation of the character to make it like as authentic as possible, which I thought was lovely. So I am recommending it. I am very um, excited to check it out and I haven't had the time yet. Yeah, it's really it great. Really good. Yeah, it's really great. It's really, it's so funny though, because I know one of the actors in it, just like through mutual friends and stuff, like for a couple of years, and seeing thirst edits of him on TikTok is really so weird. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so weird. It's very surreal because I'm like, this is just somebody that I kind of know. Where are my thirst edits? <laughs> no one even knows what you look like, oh, I feel. No. Yeah. You're a ghost. But yeah, like, there's so many edits of Will. His name is Will. He plays Cash in Heartbreak High. And it's, like, trippy. I was like, I don't, this is weird. I don't want to see, like, 13-year-old American girls making, like, thirst videos about Will. <laughs> But also, like, I have seen... I'll Actually, no, I'll finish this up quickly because I know this is meant to just be a recommendation section. But I have seen some interesting discourse about the way Americans consumed this show and the very different way they reacted to some of the scenes because they don't understand the significance of them. So, like, this isn't really a spoiler, but there, there is a scene where there's a confrontation between, like, police and an indigenous boy it's scary in the show, but I just feel like a lot of Americans like did not understand the context of that at all because the show also doesn't like cater to Americans. Mm. It doesn't explain itself. It assumes the audience understands why that's fucked. And we do. We understand why it's fucked. But I've seen like kind of probo TikToks and things by like Americans who just clearly that's gone over their head because they don't have a concept of like police brutality outside of like American Black Lives Matter. There's like also a lot of yeah, misunderstanding interesting. about like you know, First Nations history and, like, even the use of black 
for First Nations people. Like I've noticed a lot of Americans are really offended by that because they feel they've got claim to the word black as specifically like African or African-American. They don't understand. It's really like frustrating. Hmm. And I think the only other criticism I've seen about Heartbreak High and like that, the American criticism just has no legs to stand on. Like it's just not true. They just misunderstood. But I did see people complaining about the lack of like size diversity so everybody is really skinny and really hot in Heartbreak High. And that is something I did notice. Like I didn't think about it as like a form of representation, but I did just notice that everybody is hella fit, fit as fuck. Which like, I do think there's room to criticize the show for that. I do think that being said, it's still probably the most diverse show I've ever watched. But yeah, there is room for conversation about the fact that like nobody in this film isn't like conventionally attractive. Something to say there about sure. body representation and fat representation. Interesting. But yeah, I do have a dissuasion, but a half-hearted one because I could be wrong. So I, <laughs> okay. to explain, everybody has been talking about Do Revenge on Netflix, which is like the latest kind of teen movie. But I saw a lot of the commentary before I watched it, which is perhaps the mistake which is why it may have tainted this experience. People comparing it to things like Clueless, you know, like real iconic 90s to 2000s teen girl vibe that we just haven't had movies like that since then. And I saw like that iconic clip of Sophie Turner. Like, it's very funny. There's like a very good scene of her acting, which I saw that and that made me want to watch the movie. And then I started to watch it with my friend and I think I only got like 20 or 30 minutes in and I was like, I can't fucking watch this. That's a shame. Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't understand why people are A, comparing it to iconic movies because while the costume design was very gorgeous and like, I guess iconic in the sense that these are all cool outfits, it doesn't feel like the other movies. And I felt that the scripting was quite poor. Like Heartbreak High scripting for like, Gen Z or young people is incredible. Mm. It's probably the best script I've ever like heard in terms of teens. It's so good. And it's being internationally recognized for like it's razor sharp, like quite witty dialogue. At one point, somebody insults somebody else and they're like, shut up, bong water. And that like killed me. Yeah. That, like fucking right. sent me like really hilarious, funny, creative insults. Just really good. And Do Revenge felt like so like millennials trying to write Gen Z, like always putting words like slay in slightly the wrong spot. Right. And there's one scene where the main character who was played by uh, Camilla Mendes is like- Of Stranger it- Things, right? No, that's Maya Hawke, who is the other main character. Yeah, right. But the main main character is Camilla Mendes from Riverdale. And there's a scene where she's like, you wouldn't tear down another woman of colour, would you? And it's so, like, it does not land to me. Yeah. It's like some 50-year-old was writing. Yeah, I was like, this doesn't doesn't land to me. This is so, like, millennial Americans trying to figure out what the kids are saying. I don't know. And that was just the first 20 or 30 minutes. I am open for people to message me and be like, you should keep watching it. It was really good. But I'm going to need some like actual opinions before I continue because I just couldn't sit through it. I just thought it was kind of (laughs) shit. So yeah, it's like a dissuasion, but also because I didn't finish it, like I can't can't actually talk shit. So I'm I'm curious if other people like were disappointed by it because all I have seen are glowing reviews and I just, I can't see it. Yeah, that's a shame because I do like uh, the Stranger things actor because that's something i've been watching maya hawk recently maya hawk yes i forgot as <laughs> you said it and i forgot ethan hawk's daughter you were i actually me. also didn't think maya hawk was very good in it which is a shame her acting felt very similar to her acting in stranger things but it's like a different character mm. but like at that point i'm like are you acting or are you just like this <laughs> like why are you carrying that ca- this is weird 
I don't know. I just don't think Maya Hawke is that great of an actor, but I love her in Stranger Things. I just don't think she's very good in other movies. Yeah. Well, that's my recommendation for today. Uh, Stranger Things. You guys should should check it out if you haven't. No, <laughs> I'm, like- <laughs> I'm, I'm the last person to be watching Stranger Things. My real recommendation is a recent horror movie, new A24 horror movie called Bodies, 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 yes. which you and I saw together. I loved that so day. much. I'll be brief, but it's incredibly funny. Like you were saying about Heartbreak High, incredibly sharp. Yeah, it really uh, nails Gen Z dialogue yeah. in a way that you just don't see anywhere else. And it's so funny because it, yeah, it just absolutely nails like the very like Twitter sphere, vaguely political language that gets thrown around. But the, mm, the big buzzwords. joke is that these characters throwing it around are still just like bourgeois liberals. Mm-hmm. And it just is is seen as being kind of superficial and shallow yeah. in an extremely amusing way. So, and I love it. And it's it's very amusing and sufficiently spooky, which I love. I thought it was so much fun and I hate horror movies. But yeah, it's interesting because like, I mean, this episode is going to be about a horror movie, yes. which I loved. And then I watched Bodies, 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 which I loved. So, like, maybe I do actually somewhat, or I can I like horror movies. I've just only seen bad ones because yes. I normally, like, fucking hate Let the horror genre. Let me guide you in this world of horror. <laughs> yeah, I, Mitch I is love a horror, horror enthusiast. I've always hated it. But I, and just one more note on Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Like, I just think this and Heartbreak High are quite revolutionary for, like, Gen Z media. I just mm. feel like it's the first time I've seen media that, A, treats, like, it's Gen Z audience like we're intelligent. It's not patronizing. It's genuinely like it knows that you know what it's talking about. If The whole thing feels sometimes like an inside joke, which is really great because I think media can be really patronizing to its younger audience. And on top of that, the whole thing is, yeah, also like it's a satire, obviously. It's also a study on like Gen Z and main character syndrome, which I just, which would make more sense if you watched yeah, it. You'll watch know it. exactly what it. I'm talking about. It's really great. It gets it. It gets it. Uh, in terms of dissuasion, we saw the new Amsterdam movie the other day. Yeah, we went to the premiere screening. in like entertainment quarter. Uh, not very good. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, to me, the most fascinating part of the film is how interesting it finds itself. The movie keeps thinking it dropped these massive bombshells. Like, look at this. This really happened. And then you're just like, well, like, that's it. Like, oh, like, like, yeah. like the movie just acted like it did something really interesting. And you're like, oh, okay. But not in like a disappointed way, but kind of like you feel a bit sorry for the movie. Like you just want <laughs> to be like, there, there. yeah, I pity the movie. I'm like, there, like you tried your best. Like, it's okay. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but anyways, that, that's my brief dissuasion. Speaking of good horror movies though. Yes. So today we are going to talk about Jordan Peele's latest horror flick called Nope, which is here by popular demand because Mitch and I watched it when it was in cinemas. How long ago was that? A couple months ago? Yeah, I think in August. Um, and like loved it. Just thought it was amazing. And again, like I've seen, I think, because I've, I've seen Get Out, Us and now Nope. Is that all three of them? Are there mm-hmm. other? Yeah. Okay. I've seen all of them and loved all of them. Again, as somebody who hates horror, but apparently I don't hate horror. And I probably think Nope may be like my favorite Maybe controversial, definitely but I more agree, than definitely more than us. Probably my least favorite from the three. Mm. But um, I was kind of surprised to find out then afterwards that like so many people really disliked it or didn't enjoy it or like didn't get it or whatever. Or, or, or at, at best, kind of thought it was Peel's worst film. Yeah, even if it was good, not as good as the other two. Yeah, which really surprised me. And I was talking about it on Instagram stories, being like, you know, I loved it. I loved. 
xyz things about it and i had quite a few people respond telling me that they honestly just didn't really get it and that they thought that it was too like subtextual like not quite on the too nose enough yeah, yeah. and that too again over the place too scatterbrained yeah they didn't really get the point of it which surprised me but i we had a lot of requests of us to like talk about it because people want to know why we liked it i guess and there's actually so much to talk about with nope that i feel like it was worth a whole episode so this whole episode we're just going to talk about nope and horror movies and sci-fi themes and Jordan Peele. Yeah, because it has so much to say. I think this is the film is a really good lens to discuss like notions of, of blackness, late capitalist culture, just contemporary society at large, non-human animals, media, et cetera, et cetera. So it's so dense. So yeah. I'm keen to talk about it. And so much movie talk on this. Uh, I know. I'm so, I'm so in my element right now. I know. I feel like it's going to be fun for you this episode. I'm keen. All right. Shall we? Let's get into it. I'm just going to add a disclaimer here that obviously there are going to be spoilers for Nope because we are discussing the movie. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want it to be spoiled, you may need to skip this episode. Surely it's out on like streaming. Yeah, I feel like most people who like have an interest in it have seen it by now. Like we've left it late enough. Or on Amazon or Pirate Bay. Yeah. One of them. Well, I'm just saying, if you don't want the plot spoiled for you, skip this episode. So Nope is like a Western slash sci-fi movie it follows these two siblings oj and m we'll talk about the name oj later <laughs> so two black siblings who grew up in like western america come on what state it's set in surely it's in hollywood in la yes yes it's yes. in that area it's near hollywood it has proximity mm-hmm. to hollywood because oj and m's father dies in like weird circumstances yes, a penny falls, falls from into the his sky. Eye, yeah, into his eye and kills him yeah, it's pretty Very strange. fucking strange. He just like drops dead. It's essentially like it comes down with the speed of a bullet and kills him. And so OJ and M inherit their horse farm, which is not like a farm farm. They breed horses for Hollywood. So they breed horses to be used in like commercials and in movies. And it's not really going super well. Because OJ has, I mean, he's away with the horses. Like, he's really great. He understands them on quite a deep level and he's really good at handling them, but he doesn't have the communication skills or the extroversion to really, like, sell it to a client. He's not very good at working with other people, which is kind of a problem when you're working with horses and commercials. And then his sister M, she's got the personality, the exuberance. Like, she was made for Hollywood. She's a real hustler, but she doesn't give a fuck about the business. She wants to go out, become an actress or, like, getting to movies. She's, like, grand ambitions and doesn't really want to be tied to the farm. And so she wants it to be sold. And they're kind of having these financial issues where they're trying to figure out what to do with the farm. So they're back on the farm for this reason. And then mysterious things start to happen. Horses start to disappear. They feel like they're seeing, like, a UFO or something. They don't really know what's going on. And then the movie really is about, like, this family versus the UFO, but there's a lot of other themes as well. So the UFO, dubbed affectionately Jean Jacket, I think is what they name it. It's about them figuring out, A, what the fuck it is, mm. okay? Because it's like, it's a UFO, but then it's not a UFO. No, that, yeah, that's, that's the big the kind twist. That's kind of the plot twist. So it's actually, the UFO is an alien. It's not a spacecraft in inhib- like which has aliens inside it driving it around. It is, the machine is an alien. Mm-hmm. Which like, a side note, But I really found the way they conceived 
of this alien as super interesting because I think a lot of alien movies can fail in how, like, the alien is always so humanoid and, like, Mm. we look at it and we understand its physiology. Like, it's got arms and legs and eyes and a mouth and, like, it's easy for us to look at it and, like, know what it is. Mm. But, like, if aliens actually, you know, existed or came to Earth or whatever, like, wouldn't it just be, like, a fucking cloud of gas or something? Like, it just... Yeah. It'd be, like, inconceivable to us. We We wouldn't wouldn't recognise it as being alive in the same... Yeah, we wouldn't know what we're looking at. Yeah. And so I loved that, like, that is totally what this alien is. Like, you don't know what you're looking at pretty much the entire time you're looking at it. Yeah, visually, it's so beautiful. It it unfolds into this deep sea creature, but it's also, I I thought it was kind of orchid-like as well. Yeah, it did look like an orchid. I saw it also described as jellyfish-like. And I also saw it described as a biblically accurate angel. Okay. Which I thought was interesting, interesting and I kind of see it. I kind of see it. Okay. It's a very abstract idea of what an alien could look like, which I think is cool because, yeah, we wouldn't fucking know what aliens look like. And I think it's lazy to interpret them as just like these big headed humanoid Martians. So that was cool. But anyway, so they realized that the UFO is actually an alien and it's essentially a large predator that is picking off the horses and eating them. And also, it seems it has an appetite for humans. There's a really, like, fucked scene where Mm. it just eats a bunch of people that was, like, so awful. And you just, well, what's awful is the the sounds of it. Just Yeah, you can hear them, like, screaming and and making squishy noises as they get eaten. It's kind of horrible. So vicious. Yeah. And I think what's also important to note is that it's not so much OJ and the others coming after the, or trying to kill or trying to destroy uh, at first, you know, this UFO is about trying to capture it. Yeah. That's, that's the entire yes. plot. So the entire photo. plot is they're obviously having these financial issues with their farm and they're selling their horses one by one to Jupe, uh, a man who owns like a Western themed carnival and they like, they need money. Mm. And then they have this idea where they're like, oh shit, if there's an alien or UFO or whatever, and we get a photo of it, we mm. can sell that to the media and then we can fund our farm. So the movie is, yeah, you, you're right. So interesting. Cause it's not a like, it's not a classic alien movie in the sense that you got to fight off these invaders. They just want a photo of it. The entire movie is them trying to capture footage not kill the alien, not defeat the alien, not even trying to catch the alien, just capture footage of the alien so they can sell it to the media. It's really interesting. It's really relevant to some of the plot themes we'll get into. But in this attempt to get images, things start to get crazy very quickly. Like they find out that Jupe, who owns a neighboring carnival. Played by Steven Yoon. Yes. Who I love. Yes. He's so great in this movie. So Jupe, he's been building a relationship with Jean Jacket with the express intent to exploit it. Mm. So he's like feeding it horses to try and like gain trust with it because the goal then is to have this large exhibition where he like feeds the alien and people pay to view it kind of like a zoo and so that's really interesting because i think the plot really quickens Mm. when he does attempt to do that and it goes very wrong as it would because he doesn't have control over this animal this predator like he thinks he does but he doesn't things go wrong people get eaten that's where that awful awful scene is and now like things get scarier because initially they're just trying to capture footage of it but they're not super in danger if that makes sense but now it's eating people and it's revolting and now it's like this predator on the loose rather than like an animal that occasionally jumps out to eat it's like i feel like it stops becoming just an animal and starts becoming a predator and that's when it becomes a bit scary and even then they don't like they're not trying to kill it they're just trying to capture an image of it and it's very intense they come up with this elaborate plan because whenever the 
alien appears, like electricity starts oh, working. Yeah. So they have this like elaborate plan. They make plan. this camera that can be, you know, uh, spun. They can record the film just by like a handheld, hand, yeah, hand cranked, and then eventually through this final massive uh, spectacle that is like probably like the last half hour where they're trying to record things the, go haywire things the final haywire. act and then the orchid jellyfish alien jean jacket ends up being destroyed uh, as M releases I believe what this massive inflatable uh, yeah this inflatable of dupe, of dupe yeah uh, as like a cowboy uh, and the alien mistakes it for like food food and then eats it and then it all just kind of implodes, implodes from the inside yeah. And then they get their picture. They get their photo. They get yes. their photo, but it's kind of fucked because I don't know, it's kind of hard to explain like how intense the last kind of act is where like everything is going wrong and they are desperately trying to get this photo at the risk of their lives. And then, you know, they win. They win. Jean Jacket dies and they get their photo. And as M is like on the ground panting, realizing she's won a bunch of reporters step out and they fucking have the cameras rolling. Mm. So this whole, like, this whole journey of, like, we need to get this exclusive footage of this alien that no one knows about so we can fund our farm kind of ends up being for nothing because reporters get there anyway. Mm. And they record... I suppose so. Interesting. Yeah, I know not that, everybody yeah, that, saw it that way. That's not how I, how I saw I, it. But. I kind of felt that a little bit but we can get into that so we that's kind of that. the the plot generally hopefully if you're listening to this that made ideally sense. <laughs> you, that made sense and ideally you've you've also seen it as well so we can so get we into the nitty-gritty get, yeah yeah okay so now that we have kind of our main synopsis let's get into like specific scenes and themes that we thought were really interesting so a conversation that came up quite a lot from people who didn't like the film was what about the chimp what was the point what was the significance what the of the hell Gordy, the chimp? was that chimp doing there okay so the movie opens up with a scene from like a few years back where it's like a sitcom set and it's carnage. There's like people on the ground dead and injured and whatever and like there's blood everywhere and there's like a chimp in a party hat who's like covered in their blood. He's obviously the one that's attached to them on the set of the sitcom. Yep, and then alongside that scene is kind of the epigraph of the film, which is a, a biblical quote, which is, quote, I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile. And make you a spectacle. Yes. Okay. So there's that quote and then there's a chimp scene. That's the opening. That's the opening. And then later in the movie, we find out that that was Jupe, right? Yes. And he's grown up and he's got this Western carnival where he's like turned that awful event, which we find out like Gordy the chimp, like a balloon popped. He went nuts and like hurt all these people. And it was a really deeply traumatic, awful thing that happened. And so Jupe, he's turned this horrible event into like his own macabre spectacle he has all this merchandise and paraphernalia from that day and it's really odd because he was there and like those were his friends and his co-stars that were mauled and killed and had their faces eaten off and whatnot and he was sitting there like covered in blood and terrified it's really odd like you're watching it and you're thinking about how odd it is because we we see it along with him and now he's like this really bubbly adult who runs his carnival and this is like something he like has collectibles of yes yeah we enter uh, early in the film his office and with oj and m as they're discussing a business deal and m is like oh shit like you're from gordy's home like i love you're that little asian kid i loved you in that show and he's like Gives them a brief tour of like this hidden room in his office, which is the room with all of these like souvenirs and mementos and all these collectibles of that event. 
uh, and talking about how, you know, not everyone gets to see this. You know, people paid him like $50,000 just to stay in this room for a night. Like people are obsessed with Gordy's with home Gordy's and what home happened. And with what happened. Which like honestly would happen in real life. Yes, which we'll, we'll get into a bit more. And then later in the film, we revisit that scene from the very beginning and see it in full. We see that the build up as Gordy, who is in his in the sitcom, dressed as a human. He's like part of the family. They're all giving him gifts. It's like yeah, his birthday. Gordy's birthday is the episode. a balloon pops and then it just turns into carnage as we kind of see yeah, like the, the scene. The from- pop scares him and mm. then he just goes feral. Then we see this all from Jupe's perspective as he's, you know, killing all of the... The oh, cast so traumatic for me, and then comes up to Jupe in a very very stressful scene. Yeah, it's so scary because like bump. he doesn't initially notice Jupe, and mm. Jupe is hiding under the table, and you're just like, you're scared, he's scared because he's the only person that hasn't like been eaten, um, and like you just fingers crossed that the chimp doesn't notice him, and then he does, and he like makes eye contact, and it is the scariest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life. And then he, like, slowly comes closer and you're just, like, so terrified because you don't know if he's going to, like, bite Jupe's face mm. off or not. But it seems that the chimp, like, has calmed down since his attack, but you don't know. And then he, like, reaches to try and fist bump him because that's, like, a thing in Gordy's show where he, like, fist bumps. Mm. And just as he's, like, reaching, his little hand is, like, so close to Jupe's face, he gets shot. Yeah. And it's, like... It's like a jump scare. Yes. And then, like, authorities run in and they save Jupe and whatever. And it's very horrible, the whole thing. And then, like, knowing that trauma, it's, like, yeah, it's fucked. That, mm. like, Jupe, who was, like, a child when this happened and it should have been horrifying, like, turned it into this, like, fun thing that he profits off. He exploits that trauma, right? So... What was the significance of the chimp? And that's been a really big issue. I think for a lot of a viewers, lot of people, people really even who like the it. film, they're like, I get the film, but like, like, yeah, the chimp scene was freaky, but like, it was just such a non sequitur. Like, I don't Yeah, because it has nothing to do with OJ and M and Jean Jacket. Why is there this random flashback to this chimp? Why do we have this backstory for Jupe? Which is interesting to me. I think we even had that same experience. Yeah, like, when I finished it, it, I was like a little confused and then we yeah. talked it out and I understood. Because to me, that's what the movie is about that's not like a, a side story like that's what that's, that's really the main ethos that's what the, exactly that's like the thesis statement of the film and then i feel the rest of the film expands from that point yes so i guess to explain it in very clear terms the chimp scene is about how we as people or people in general commodify and exploit everything like everything is a spectacle and so with that biblical quote in the beginning about things being so vile and so atrocious and being turned to spectacles, like that's what it's about. So Jupe's trauma, he commodifies that into this like thing that he makes money off. And then he like does the same thing with Jean Jacket, Mm. right? So that's the plot parallel. That's the relevance because we see this and then we see that Jupe did not learn. There's a lot of commentary throughout the movie about predators and wild animals and taming and controlling wild animals and like Gordy's home failed so spectacularly because you can't put a chimp in human clothes Mm. and then just expect things to be fine like you can't just like pick up this ape and be like it's fine he's friends with us things won't go wrong like you can't tame him like that that's not how it works and that was a very ambitious thing for the creators of that show to do and they failed and then real people were like killed and maimed and so it's interesting because Droop like does not learn from that. In fact, tries to replicate it probably because he needed to. Like Right. Well, commodification becomes a way to repress the trauma. 
exactly. He needs to control his own trauma, and the way he knows how to do that is to reenact those circumstances, but with control. Mm. So then, which is the whole, this is how the plot kicks off, right? Is like Dupe is trying to build this relationship with Jean Jacket and trying to befriend this alien, which he's then going to exploit for money, which is exactly what happened to Gordy when he was a child. And he's obviously doing so because he thinks he can. Mm. He thinks he can correct exactly. the past. Exactly. We're seeing, and we're seeing a repetition of yeah, what it's history repeating itself yeah. because he hasn't learned. And then it goes spectacularly wrong as expected. And like, I think something that was like quite twisted of the film to do, but like in like a very macabre, funny way, is the sole survivor aside from him on that set was the little girl who was a star of the show. She is very maimed. Mm. Like, she's completely disfigured from the attack, but she survived. And he invites her to this first showing of Jean Jacket, this first experience of this alien. Ex- right. He invites her to come see it, which and that's is another so thing twisted. as well. <laughs> and another thing was like, I don't get why she was there. That's another thing another that thing people I have said. But so I'm like, she the was that? there because he needed to prove that he had control over the situation and that what happened before would not happen again. So wasn't she wearing a t-shirt? I think a herself or a Gordy's of the show? Yeah, she was wearing a reference to so Gordy's again, home. So again, that trauma has become a spectacle and has been recommodified yeah. by the people that were the subjects of the trauma. Yeah, so she survived that trauma alongside Jupe. Yep. She is invited by Jupe to this new thing with this alien that Jupe has like is launching. Mm. And then she gets fucking eaten and this time like does not survive. And it's so twisted in like a very funny way that like she survived the chimp and only to die at the hands of like this alien that uh, Jupe lost control of. I was like, oh, you poor fucking thing. There's a point to that. Yes. And the point is that we just cannot stay away from spectacle, right? Like why did she go? Why? Like, are you not traumatized from like the chimp thing? And not in like a victim blamey sense, but in this idea that like we can't, help ourselves even when like it's fucked we'll go just to see it like we'll go so the point of the chimp essentially is to show that you can't just tame the beast right you can't just tame the beast and we've like tried that and it's failed and we're doing it again and people are losing their lives in the process because we can't stay away from that spectacle and from that greedy need to exploit and commodify and that's really interesting because it's in sharp contrast to oj so dupe being the guy with Gordy's home, the chimp, OJ being the main character. The way he approaches animals is very interesting. So he's the horse trainer, but he has a really unique relationship with them where he respects them, I think is kind of the key point, is he respects animals. He respects them as creatures with their own desires. I feel like he understands them more than he does humans. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's kind of a huge part of like the stories. He's like super socially awkward, does not know how to talk to people. He's pretty bad at maintaining eye contact when he talks to people. Like, Daniel Kaluuya does such a good job of playing him, actually. I just have to say, the acting is amazing. But he has a real way with horses because he understands them. And he, like, talks about understanding them more than understanding people who are unpredictable and do strange things, like Jupe, you know. Animals don't have this exploitative urge. But this way with the animals becomes really important when it comes to dealing with the alien, which he names Jean Jacket, because he names all his horses like strange names, and he names this one Jean Jacket. The film is also structured in this way. Yes, like I forgot about that, actually. Me too. I didn't care for that too much. But I know you liked I it. I liked it. I thought it was cool. But anyway, so horses have different names, and then this film is kind of structured where, like, one goes missing, and then, like, it's structured in, like, the order of them going missing. 
getting eaten by Jean Jacket. But even him naming Jean Jacket is really interesting because it's this approach to the alien, not as the alien mm. or like it. It's like he names it. He, it grounds it a bit. It grounds it a bit. It makes it seem less like an it and more like a them. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, yeah, not this this mystical other. Yeah, it's just another. World. It's just another living creature, yeah. and he really approaches it that way. So he understands that it's a predator because it hunts and it feeds on the horses and the people, and he like doesn't show real fear towards it. He just treats it like an animal, just another animal to like understand and round up <laughs> so that they can get this photo. It's He's not fearful and it's very cool that he's not fearful. But this relationship is interesting because it's the opposite of this exploitative need. He wants the photo, which I guess is in some way exploitative, but he's not like trying to hurt the UFO. And more importantly, he's not trying to control it. He's not trying to have a relationship with it. He doesn't need to best the beast. It's just an animal which he frequently talks about and it's because of this understanding that they're like successful in navigating this creature. And I thought that was really interesting because I think, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is like just the subversive way this like represents aliens, like alien movies. Mm. So I feel like classic kind of alien invader story is like, oh no, these aliens are invading Earth. They are vastly superior and more technologically advanced beings. Yes. And they, it's very imperialistic. Like it's very classic Independence Day stuff. Yeah. They're this advanced race coming to Earth. They're either going to ethnically cleanse it of the inferior human or they want to mine Earth for its resources. It's something we have that it wants. Or they're going to use the human bodies for their own reproduction, like, Mm. you know, breed inside of you or whatever. And I think that's, yeah, really interesting. So I listened to a You Are Good episode on Arrival, another alien movie that is a fantastic alien movie, which subverts ideas of aliens. And Ryan Ken, who is a writer, was on that podcast. And they said something I find really interesting, which I think can be applied to Nope and Nope's subversion of alien tropes where they said that alien movies are often just a representation of white people's colonial anxiety, mm. which I thought was like, oh, my God. You know when the light bulb just clicks and you're like, oh, my God, so true. And it's this idea that, like, white people cannot understand the terror of imperialism and just how much of, like, a doomsday situation that is for the people that are victims of that unless it happens to them. But the only way they can conceive of that happening to them is if aliens invaded like that's the only way they'll ever be subject to the imperialism that they have subjected other races to and so alien movies can often feel pretty fucking racist and pretty like imperialistic and it can be frustrating to watch because it's like oh no how you know unfeasible that this could happen to you (laughs) like white people just yeah they can't sympathize with actual people of color that this happens to they can only sympathize with other white people and the only way they can understand the horrors of imperialism is if they make a fucking alien movie like it's pretty it's a bit of an eye roll but I think that's really interesting because that is a lot of alien movies and that's not nope. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's like the opposite of that because these movies are like panic driven. Like there's panic. It's terror. Yeah. And OJ like never panics. He's never terrified. It's like a thing that's happening and he's like, okay, this is how I'm going to deal with this. This is the way that animals react to certain stimuli and this is the way they view the world and I'm just going to navigate that. I'm not fighting Jean Jacket. I'm not an adversary to Jean Jacket. I just need to navigate surviving alongside Jean Jacket so we can get a photo. It's really like non-violent. Yeah, and I think Peel is astutely aware of the way that he is subverting and playing into 
the very colonial fears of the alien. Because in so many of these alien invasion movies, it's just a replication of what white people did to indigenous cultures, especially in America, of the frontier of the manifest destiny of civilizing the savage lands. We just retell that same story, but at a galactic level of aliens doing it to white people. And And that's why it's it's so scary. And now it's it's scary. (laughs) I I think it plays into this subconscious fear. Like you said, this clone anxiety. Totally, that's why it's scary. And I think it's so obvious that Peel is playing into that and is uh, satirizing that or Mm -hmm. is commenting on that. Because the film is a Western. In one way, it's a Western because it's set in the American West in the the barren desert lands, like the original Hollywood Westerns. But it's also about Westerns. OJ and the family ranch produces, breeds horses for the purposes of Hollywood productions, for the purposes of evoking the West, evoking the iconography of the West. And the same with Jupes theme park everywhere you look in this film is the reoccurring imagery of of the frontier and i think by showing these mythologies as being just that mythologies just kind of images that we deploy at will i think he is cleverly satirizing that mythology as being completely made up as just being an ideology that mm, the american just can, acting. that americans continue to hold on to because that is what is the the, the founding imagery of America, of the cowboy, the mm. the beautiful land of opportunity, of prosperity, of the open lands that they're just waiting to be developed and colonized and exploited. Exactly. And also, like, going off the Western thing, a lot of Western movies, like, the conflict is about, like, invaders and foreigners as well. Like, it's Western cowboys against, like, Native Americans. Like, there's a lot of colonial ideas in Westerns as well. And this is really interesting because this is not a movie where, like, cowboys are defending their land. That's not what this is. Because OJ isn't defending his land from Jean Jacket. That's not the conflict. Mm. It's not an invader conflict. It's an alien movie, but it's not an invader conflict. And I think a huge part of that is obviously the blackness of the characters. I actually saw this really funny sentence in the New Yorker's review for Nope, where they just kind of made a joke about the fact that, like, of course, the ranch targeted by Jean Jacket is black-owned, like the universality of racism, which I just thought was really funny. Sure, (laughs) Like, true. I mean, I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but I thought that was a funny thing to mention. But yeah, it's like, it's interesting because, like, that writer also describes, you know, this family, like OJ and M, and their conflict with the alien is interesting because it's the unwanted fighting the unwanted in a way like it's the experiencing racism especially in america as a black person and being the minority and being the unwanted and being the person that people see as like an invader and foreigner onto their like white land and then like their relationship with jean jacket is like interesting it's why they don't have that antagonistic relationship with jean jacket because their blackness means they don't think in that colonial mm, sense they just mm. don't approach the world that way i saw if it's scary it's it's scary because they may kill him, but not because it embodies this colonial. Yeah, fear. they don't have colonial anxiety because yeah. they're not white. And going back to like this, there's no need to dominate or control Jean Jacket. There's this really great quote from Richard Brody in his review for New Yorker about Nope, where he says, Peel makes explicit the inherently predatory aspect of the photographic image, the taking of life, so to speak, mm. and the responsibility that image making imposes on the maker. And I thought that was really interesting because this whole film is following the journey of this pair of black siblings trying to get a photo of this predator and how, in a way, like that can be predatory, even though they're not predators. But something that's really interesting is, so what OJ figures out is that jean jacket will only eat you if you make eye contact. If you don't make eye contact, he'll leave you alone because he doesn't see you as prey. 
And it's, I think, also a really great subversion of the white anxieties of colonialism because if you don't panic and if you just act normal and you just don't look at it, it'll ignore you. But people panic and they look at it and start screaming and then it eats them. And I just thought that was like a very obvious way of critiquing like white panic and white terror in alien movies. And also like that's why the people of color fucking survive in this movie mostly, except for Drew, but like all the other ethnic people in this movie survive and it's like the white people that get eaten. And I think the reason for that is because there's this understanding that people of color and especially black people have with their environment. I mean, we've talked before about black threat assessment as well. Mm. And this thing where like, I say people of color, but specifically black people like won't panic as quickly. They have a greater understanding of threats in the society purely by existing in a violent state that wants to eradicate them. And that means they're more likely to survive these scenarios and be thoughtful and strategize and survive these horror movies. That's why Peele's horror movies are all so enjoyable because all the characters are so fucking smart. Yes. <laughs> they're exactly. so fucking smart. They always got a plan. And so this, I thought that was just like a cool thing to think about because given the predator-prey ideas, that's really interesting because in Jupe, like, he thinks he's a predator. He sees himself as like Jean Jacket. They're both predators. And he sees himself as a predator because he's, in a way, consuming Jean Jacket as, like, something to exploit. Mm. They're just really interesting ideas of, like, the image being consuming and, like, you being a predator by consuming the image or the spectacle. Right. Because Dupe was the predator in that sense. And I saw a very interesting about, like, you know, consuming the spectacle. I saw an interesting article on Mubi, which was talking about a lot of critics' reviews, which we've seen... Uh, articulated like the same thing with our mm. friends uh, of people enjoying the movie but kind of disappointed like they didn't feel that everything cohered everything came together in the same way and that article which i'll link below drew attention to the fact that people feeling like the movie didn't quite give enough it wasn't a spectacle there enough. wasn't a, like the film wasn't a spectacle enough so it's almost like we're falling into the same traps as the characters of demanding a spectacle then when yes. we watch the movie and feel like it doesn't quite appeal to our spectacle-hungry desires. Yes, you know? exactly. Like, the film is a critique of spectacle. And Jordan yes. Peele, like, there's a GQ interview of him. Um, a journalist interviewed him a couple of days before Nope was released. And, like, Jordan Peele himself, like, speaks about how the film was inspired uh, during, like, the pandemic, during lockdown, where there was so much bad news and so much trauma and how much of a spectacle mm. such horrible things became and how people were so glued to those spectacles and, like, people fucking froth a spectacle, no matter how gruesome or horrible or negative it is. And we can even say that now with shit like the fucking floods in New South Wales mm. and how much people love consuming, like, photos of, like, fucked weather. And I'm one of them. Like, I'm not yeah. critiquing people. I'm just saying we, we do. We love to look at that shit. And it's so interesting that this film is a critique of spectacle. Yes. And then a lot of its negative reviews are people saying that it was too boring up too slow or not violent enough, not actiony enough, not enough of a spectacle for them. Because I'm like, this movie is about you. Like, it's about this need of yours to have a spectacle in order to enjoy something. Speaking of exploitation, the film isn't just about the exploitation of, like, a spectacle or of predators or of animals. It's also about the exploitation of blackness as well and how blackness has been exploited for, like, the future of cinema or the history of cinema and yet, like, never really recognised. So in 
the early parts of the film when we see them, when we see M and OJ like at a Hollywood set trying to film a commercial with one of their horses. M is giving this like great presentation, which is introducing who they are and what their like company is. And she talks about how the first American movie, is that what it was? The first movie, the, the first, first movie. cinematographic image. Yeah, is of. of a black jockey riding a horse. And the person who made that film went down in the history books, but nobody knows the name of the black jockey on mm, the horse. Mm. And like, she talks about that. So it's like, it's very, it's not even like subtext. Like this is her saying this in the movie. And also what is fascinating is the opening credit sequence is of the camera slowly tracking in, moving in towards what we find out later is the mouth of the alien. But at the beginning, we don't know what yeah. image it is. And we move in and then we see that clip within the alien kind of being projected which is very strange. I'm not exactly sure what to make of that, but it's also to tie together the alien well, it's, representation. It's the alien consuming the fucking jockey is what I would see it sure. as. Like it's commentary on how like cinema, because I think the alien represents in a lot of ways like cinema. I mean, at the end when it opens up, you were telling me that it looks like a, like a camera That lens? was my theory. Yeah, when... Because when, when it looks at the characters, it unfolds this, like, square shape this thing. This green square. This green square. And when I saw that, I kind of thought it looked like a, a camera sensor. Like, it, it sees like it's taking photos. Yes, exactly. It yeah. looks like a camera. And Which, I think... Yeah. So, my interpretation mm. of that opening is literally about the camera consuming this jockey. The first actor, really, the first person on screen ever was a black person and no one knows their name. Mm. Their name wasn't recorded. And so M says that in her monologue. And I find that so interesting because then the entire movie is about this pair of black siblings trying to be the first people to capture footage or a picture of the alien. And they succeed and they are the first people to do it. But then like the journalists and camera people appear and they've got their own rolling cameras. And it to me appeared, I know you disagree or you have some other thoughts, which we can get to in a second. But to me, it appeared that in some ways it kind of felt like- Like it undermined their journey. It undermined their journey. And not just that, like no one's going to remember them as- Like they might've got the first picture, but no one's going to remember them as being these people who did this thing because all these other people around them also have footage, also have cameras. There's a white journalist, a TV reporter right next to them. Especially now in this day, like as I work in the media, no one fucking knows who takes the first photo or the first video. Like how many viral videos have you seen that you don't know who took it? And I feel like it was just one of those things where like, just like the jockey, just which in the film, is their ancestor that's not a real life thing but in the film the jockey she says is like their ancestor and like just like history is repeating itself blackness is still exploited the journalists needed this pair of siblings to do what they did to go on the journey they did in order to get this footage but they'll never be recognized for the sacrifices they made and for the work they had to put in to get this image that's how i saw it is like it's blackness being exploited because it's the black labor that produced Yep. these images or even just produced the circumstances for these images well yeah but and it's, it's not them that are going to get fucking rich off and it. with the jockey it's you have to because the film is making this point it's interrogating the role black people had at, at the origins of cinema as a language as a representational system yeah but you can't separate the two and it's a history which is disregarded which is forgotten and so i think peel is also trying to almost in like a revisionist history way, like make us reconsider the role of blackness in cinema, which I think nowadays we think through cinema. Like we live in a post-cinema world. We're looking at screens 24-7. We're looking at videos on TikTok. Like TikTok is cinema in a weird way. Yeah, I mean, even like- It's post-cinema, but it it, it thinks cinematically. Yeah, even I just think of Vine a lot because Vine- 
kind of was cinema because you only had six seconds and people were so creative with how they used that six seconds and it was cinema like well and it's just cinema insofar as it's moving images yeah for me like the moving images as a mode of communication relatively recent uh when you think of things in historical terms but while you're saying that the film is about like the exploitation of blackness in the cinema industry. And I, I kind of see yeah, two different readings or two types of readings of the film. One is this really grounded social reading, like, oh, it's about abuse of animals, uh, abuse of non-human animals. It's about exploitation of blackness in the film industry, like these kind of specific Yeah, it's things. about spectacle and being t- like, you know, obsessed with gruesome events. Yeah, for me, I kind of got this much larger philosophical project from it, which like, I feel like it really spoke to me and I'm really excited to talk about it now. And not only, like you were saying, is the film about an exploitation of blackness, but I almost think in some ways it's about what is blackness. And I think in a way it's saying that blackness is a spectacle or identity is a spectacle or that everything's kind of a spectacle. For me, at large, the thesis of the film is about this confrontation or this tension between reality and the representation of reality. So what I mean by that is, is that, you know, we exist in the world. We can say that the world exists. The world is real. There is a reality outside of us. But then there's also these ways that we talk about the world or that we express things about the world. But the way we express things about the world is not the world. I think a way that I can try to explain what I'm talking about is there's a famous French painting of a pipe, like a smoking pipe. It's very realistic. It looks exactly like a pipe. But above it is the words, this is not a pipe. And what is interesting about that painting is that it looks like a pipe, but it reminds us that what we're looking at isn't actually a pipe, even as much as it looks like a pipe. It's the representation yeah, of a pipe. It's someone's perception. It's of someone's a pipe. perception. Yeah, and it, it's a it's a, a replication of a pipe, mm. and that is just the nature of representation. Like we have reality, and then we have representations of reality. Like for example, when I say the word tree. That's not actually a tree, but the word tree evokes the idea of a tree. So yeah. there's, a, there's a separation between the tree itself and the way the tree is represented yeah. in photos, in language. And what we're seeing, and this is what a lot of philosophers and uh, theorists have been thinking about for the past many decades, is that in media-saturated society, where we're constantly surrounded by images and we're constantly speaking and and listening to things and watching TV shows and watching movies, it's almost like the representation of things have become more prevalent and more important than the actual thing itself. Mm -hmm. Like what you were saying with the flood, in a way, for us, like we never see these floods, but it's the photos of the floods that actually... Uh, seem more real to us than the floods themselves because they're yeah, in some okay, other Yeah, okay, yeah, I get you. Yeah. Or another thing as well, which I find uh, interesting is we, we love watching nature documentaries. And sometimes I'm watching these beautiful nature documentaries and I'm like, I'm sitting in like a room watching this on a screen. I could just go outside. Like the world's <laughs> out there. I could go I'm and look so, at that tree. I'm so caught up just by looking in media images. Mm, so there's this yeah. separation between representation and reality. And it seems that in media dominated society where we're always looking at screens always reading always looking at our phones always listening to podcasts we're caught up in the simulation of reality so that's the kind of the basis of what i'm trying to talk about and i feel like that's really what the film is about the film is about this constant back and forth this tension between reality and the symbolic representations we impose on reality that we understand reality through and i think there are many many points in the film where this tension 
where this conflict, this confrontation between these two poles, these two ends, reality and its representation, kind of come into to contact. So the first thing is OJ. That's one thing that people talk about with this film. Why, Why is, is he OJ named OJ? named OJ? Why is OJ OJ? And for me, if the film is about like representation versus reality, uh, OJ, I think, is very obviously a reference to OJ Simpson. And I think for Peel, OJ Simpson represents blackness because for a long time OJ Simpson was the most famous black man in America for a lot of white people of back white in people, that day back in that day their perception of blackness kind of hinged on OJ that was like exactly. the black person they knew that was the black person they knew and he kind of was the dominant spokesperson for blackness which is funny because like if you like know anything about him he was always he's, he saw himself as like transcending blackness yeah he frequently he was, said like I'm not black yeah I think he's the quote is I'm not black I'm OJ yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think what Peel was trying to do is almost suggest that like O.J. Simpson for white people like represents blackness in the American imaginary. Mm. And because O.J. Simpson was the most prominent black man in America for, for white people for a very long time, there's a sense that every black man in America has to negotiate, uh, almost can't make a first impression because people already have an understanding of what blackness. Black men are, there's yeah. already this symbolic, there's already this representation of blackness that real black men now have to negotiate because in the American imaginary, O.J. Simpson is blackness. Yes. Uh, which is why in near the beginning when I think the, some white woman asked Yeah, the OJ, moment you said that, I thought of that scene. Yeah, yeah. Asked like, oh, like, what's your name? And he says O.J. and she makes like a she, shocked like, she face. She flinches. She seems concerned. <laughs> uh, it's because there's like a symbolic baggage that O.J. has brought because the, I, the narrative of blackness almost is more prominent than the actual black people that, that it represents. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, once you put it that way, it actually almost feels quite on the nose where it's like yeah. showing that obviously black people have to contend with racial stereotypes about them every day. Mm. And in America, every time they meet a white person, they have to negotiate the ideas that they know that white person has about them. And like any person of color can relate to that. Like as a Muslim person, mm. you know, every time I meet like white people who don't know a lot of Muslim people, which is pretty often, like they've immediately, once they meet you, they have a set of ideas of what they think you represent. And then you have to like navigate mm. that and, typically disprove them because they're usually very negative stereotypes. Yeah. And like naming um, Daniel Kaluuya's character OJ is just making that stereotype clear. So because the like the racial stereotype is in the abstract, but OJ is like in person. Like it's it's, it's real. OJ is a real person. He's a real black man. But because he's black in America, he has to contend with the abstract idea of blackness, which is neatly done here as OJ. OJ is blackness. And yeah. as the abstract concept. Yeah, yeah, I uh, get you. Which is interesting. And I think that's what Peel is trying to do. So that's, for me, that was like the first confrontation between reality and the representation of reality mm. and those two coming into conflict. The other, and I have a few examples I want to go through. The other is the horses on OJ's ranch. As we described before, the horses on the ranch are bred and trained specifically for use in film and television. I think when we see, I forget the name of the first horse, but there's like these balls attached to him, you know, like the motion capture Mm. balls or they like tape. Yeah. Uh, So he just stands still. Yes. And he's in front of a green screen. This is really funny to me because it's not like these horses are trained to be horses, but they exist to represent a horse. Yeah. (laughs) The horses exist to be in television, to be captured by a camera, to represent a horse. The horses are trained to behave like what we think horses should behave like in movies. Yeah. So the representation of the horse in film, in media is 
privileged and the actual horse existing is secondary. And we have to imagine that these ranches before the film industry were used as actual ranches yeah, for livestock. Where they for actually bred horses, horses to use on like the farm. And now these actual real places are since the film industry are repurposed to instead produce props for films where yeah. the ranch becomes uh, a representation farm. Of a ranch. It's like, yeah, the farming of representation. And that's kind of the case with Jupe's theme park. Yes. Because his theme park is literally in... It's a theme park in the West. Like, it yes. is a literal Western theme park, but actually it's a theme park that represents the West. It, like, caricaturizes the West. The theme park is what people not from the West think the West is, which is strange because it shouldn't need to represent the West because it just is in the West. Yes. Like, horses shouldn't need to represent horses because they are horses. Exactly. Yeah. But now, yeah, 100%. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And we see this privileging of the representation over, like, the material reality throughout the film because people literally kill themselves for the representation of something. So, for example, near the end of the film, there is that TMZ dude. Yeah, he, like, trespasses onto the ranch and then gets fucking stalked by Jean Jacket. Yeah, because he tries to take photos. And then as he's dying, he's like, take a photo of me, make this real. Because there's a sense that things in this world are only real if you can take a photo of Picture them. Picture it didn't happen. Yeah, it's it's the representation which validates the real instead of the other way around. Yeah, it's like so if he just dies and no one fucking sees that he died in this like spectacle of being eaten by an alien, then he just died. Yeah. But if there's like footage or pictures that capture him dying by this giant alien eating him then now it's like it's actually a thing that happened yeah. that people will talk about and now it's real yes i feel like if you're it's like in the modern day equivalent of that riddle of like if a tree falls and <laughs> no one hears it did it really fall sure, i feel like yes. it's like that that yeah that's so true and oh the the cinematographer character as well like becomes eaten by jean jacket so he can crank his camera so he can film yeah it, he like no wants to film it. being eaten by it so he like continues to hold the camera up while being devoured mm. to capture film that he knows nobody else will ever capture even though no one's gonna see it because he gets eaten but it's about capturing that spectacle is so important to him yes exactly the representation becomes more important than mm. his life and that brings me back to the chimp scene which is what solidified it as i was watching that's what it made everything click of like oh this is what the film is about it's this confrontation between symbols and reality. And that's with Gordy, the chimp, the star of Gordy's home. He is dressed up as a human. We keep telling him that it's a human, or we keep telling ourselves that he's playing a human. We keep imposing this symbolic order on him that this is how he's meant to act. But at the end of the day, sometimes an animal is just a fucking animal. And sometimes our representations of things can only contain so much before they're completely destroyed, before they implode on themselves, because reality always finds a way to poke through. Reality always finds a way to destroy our representations of things. So even though we keep saying, oh, Gordy, the chimp, he's like a human. He, we put him in human clothes. Eventually, the chimp is a chimp. And we can only hold on to this, yeah. the representation of things for so long. Which is the same thing with Jean Jacket and Jupe. Like, Jupe treating Jean Jacket, the alien, like they have some kind of relationship or like he's been tamed. Mm. But like, you're deluding yourself because that's not reality. Mm. Like that, you have a representation of what you think your relationship with the alien is. But the reality is it's a predator and it's going to fucking eat you. Yeah. And again, the film in a way is also about trauma. The film is about how we yes. deal with trauma Yes. And if you want to think about trauma and representation, this is kind of what trauma studies is about. What trauma is, is that which cannot be represented or that which cannot 
be reintegrated back into your life. And that's why trauma stays repressed. Because if you actually had to deal with trauma, it just wouldn't make sense in your understanding of the world, your understanding of yourself. Yeah, because that's kind of what therapy is about, right? Is integrating your trauma with your current understanding of the world so that you can like resolve it. So you could say in a way that trauma is like an experience with like reality, an experience with the real that cannot be subsumed by representation. Mm. And And like Jupe could not resolve his trauma. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. I feel like in the world, there are so many events which force us to confront the real and which force us to reconsider our representational approaches to the world. So, for example, one thing that philosophers really discussed was 9-11, for example. What some people claim 9-11 did was like we lived our lives from, you know, these daily motions and we had these representational systems to make sense of the world. And then 9-11 happened and it is such an abnormal event that it becomes impossible to reintegrate that trauma back into our daily lives. Something fundamentally has to change. And that's what people thought after 9-11. But then what you actually see is that, no, actually, our culture and our society has become very, very good at taking unimaginable traumas and then somehow capitalism reintegrating it Mm -hmm. back into our representational categories our representational systems like you know 9-11 now is like a spectacle and it's a joke like we make jokes of it you'd think it's like the same with like the holocaust like you know these dreadful things like these people just yeah have turned it into jokes and spectacles and that's what we see i think with dupe and the gordy incident that incident should be so traumatic that there's no way that you can really confront it. But yet capitalism finds a way to reintegrate the trauma back into itself, to turn it into a commodity yes. in order to make sense of it, to be in order to represent it. Um, and we see this loop happen a few times, like with Gordy, the chimp that we told is a chimp, but then the chimpness is too much for representation to contain and it, it explodes in this massive trauma. And then we see that play out again when Jupe is trying to turn Jean Jacket into a spectacle. The existence of a UFO should be completely kind of unimaginable. Yeah, that should like rock your world. But and then he just accepts it and then like tries to commodify it. Becomes it becomes subsumed. Yeah, it becomes reintegrated. So we see this like back and forth between mm, reality and, and the spectacle. And I think what you were saying about traumas in terms of like large-scale traumatic events in the world is really interesting because it actually immediately reminded me of American school shootings. Yes, that's what And how thinking, like yeah. is, you know, those should be these unimaginable tragedies where like it happens and then it rocks your world and then you change the way the system functions. But instead, it's become a spectacle. It's become a debate point. It's become, for a lot of like virtue signalers, just like a point of having a yeah. take. Mm. You know, it's become something we just talk about. It no longer exists in reality. It exists in the rep- representation of reality and even from a commodified perspective like yeah now you can buy fucking bulletproof backpacks for your kids and like there's actually an entire like industry of products to buy if you're going to be a victim of a school shooter like it's instead of changing the system and changing our version of reality it just got subsumed exactly modified because these moments you'd think would absolutely fracture our dominant Mm. like perspectives and ideologies but somehow it manages to be And we're seeing the same, like, now that you say, I just can't unsee it now. Like, the same thing can be said about COVID. Yeah. And how, like, we didn't actually change the system or, like, change the way we approach the world. We just started selling masks and selling, like, other products that can help with this. And now, like, talking about COVID feels so removed from actually real life having COVID. And, like, there's all these 
takes and opinions and it purely exists in the marketplace of ideas and it There's, just stops being a physical thing. And again, to focus on Jupe in that scene where we enter his like merchandise, like his collectible space, he's talking about after the event how there was like an SNL skit of it and talking about all of these recreations and discussions of the incident after it happened. And there's a, the great scene where he's talking about the SNL skit where he's like, you know, whatever actor was like playing Gordy. He's describing in detail and he's like laughing. He's like, oh, they did such a fantastic job. Like it's hard to do. And this really ominous music is playing, which is the first time I noticed this disjunction between uh, him expressing the trauma like it was something funny, expressing the SNL skit and the movie drawing attention exactly to how fucked up this is. Yeah, exactly. And even this idea of him applauding how realistically they could recreate the trauma is like also so relevant right now with things like fucking the new um, Marilyn Monroe movie Mm. and how like kind of trauma content right now, like Jeffrey Dahmer, the new like Netflix Mm. special that everyone's really angry about as they should be. And there's something else right now that also, it'll come to me, but there's so much content right now about trauma and replicating trauma and removing trauma from reality and turning it into a representation of trauma. I think that's Mm. the entire true crime genre, Yeah. right? Which like, wow, I'm just spiraling now. Sure, yeah. (laughs) I'm spiraling. This is so big. (laughs) Well, this makes me want to discuss something which I just kind of thought of now, which is, and I don't know if you have an answer for this, but maybe we can work through this together. In that opening scene, there is a shoe. And I kind of just forgot about it, but I'm really thinking of it now. There's a shoe and it's like levitating. Yeah, it? this is during uh, the chimp attack. This is during the chimp attack. Jupe is like sitting under a table and his eyes are drawn to a floating or levitating shoe. What, standing up on its own. What do you think that shoe means or why was it placed there? Okay, so I kind of forgot about it. I kind of have an idea. I was reading uh, like just nope kind of reviews today for this podcast and I saw a reviewer describe it as a quote-unquote bad miracle. So, mm. which I was like, I have no idea what this is about. But apparently in the movie, which I don't recall, uh, like OJ like talks about bad miracles or mentions bad miracles. And I like the idea of a bad miracle is like something odd, supernatural, unexplainable, but not necessarily positive. Interesting. So a miracle is like gold falling from the sky. A bad miracle is a penny falling from the sky and getting through the fucking skull of your dad. Like, how the fuck does that happen? It's like unexplainable. So I guess it's a miracle, but it's a bad miracle. And so they, the reviewer talked about that being a representation of a bad miracle, which like he then joined to the stuff OJ was saying about bad miracles. But then other people were saying that like, it was something that Jupe imagined to make the scene feel more special. That was his representation of something kind of unexplainable and supernatural happening. And that like explains mm. his attachment to the scene and why he's, it's so special because he experienced a miracle. That is not at all. Okay. <laughs> what I got from it. Okay. I, I don't know what I got from it. This, I'm just parroting stuff I've read. I don't know what to make of it. I'm pretty sure thinking about it now, when we're in Jupe's, memento room where we're seeing all the souvenirs all the collectibles behind him and i don't know if he actually draws attention to this but behind him is that shoe in a glass case yeah i did know that he puts it in his exhibition is that shoe in the same position as it is floating in that original scene because now i'm thinking that what that is representing is how the representation the collectible has now become integrated in the recollection of the event oh it's standing yes, like it yes. does in a museum or as a collectible and now when we go and revisit and we think about the original event it's almost like we're seeing all the collectibles yes, we're seeing all the yes, representations yes, of the okay. event in the event 
So now the event itself has been completely colored, has been completely distorted yes, by okay. its translation into a representation so after the fact. The review I was talking about that said that Dupe like imagined it, I think that's kind of where it was going. Right. So it was trying to say how like when Dupe reimagines this thing, every time he v- revisits the memory, obviously your memories become less accurate over time. Um, but because now he's commodified that trauma and turned it into a spectacle, when he revisits it, something crazy, amazing, unexplainable happens, which is the shoe floating yeah. in his head because he has turned this whole event into like a bit of a miracle. Right. So when he reimagines it, he reimagines it colored with those ideas, which I think is like similar to what you're saying, where it's like yeah. when he revisits it, because the difference is you're saying that's how we're seeing it. And this person is saying that's how Jupiter. is well, seeing Well, I think it. we're seeing it kind of, through his eyes. Yeah. But for him, it's like he can only revisit that event by reimagining all the of- The collectibles there. Yeah, reimagining the event as merely an amalgamation of collectibles. Yes. And an amalgamation That's of so what has eventually turned into like commodities. Yeah, and that explains why he's able to revisit that without like chest crushing trauma mm. is because he's able to remove- what actually happened Mm. and just look at like the merchandising of it. He's like commodified the memory. Yes, exactly. Because that's the only way we can really deal with things in our media saturated society. And just to wrap this up, what is fascinating about the very end of the film is what actually destroys Jean Jacket. Which, if you remember, as we described, it was this massive dupe as a cowboy. Yeah, they let loose. floats up into the sky. They yeah. cut it loose they in the hopes loose. that the alien will eat it and yeah. then choke and die. That is exactly what happened. The alien ate it and it just imploded and it popped. And that is so interesting to me because it shows that the alien doesn't think in terms of representations. Representations are clearly a very human thing that we create. Like, like why would a human not be a human in terms of Jean Jacket's view of the world. Again, throughout the film, what initially fucked Jean Jacket up was eating that fake horse, right? Yes. That they took from dupes. Because yes. why would a horse not be a horse? Why yes. would there be some strange replication of a horse? Why would there be a, a fake horse? Why do we make fucking horses out of plastic to like stick around things? Yeah, exactly. Why do we create fake humans? Like why are humans uh, so interested in- Replicating Replicating things. and simulating the world. And it's ultimately this human- compulsion to simulate and to represent the world, which actually killed Jean Jacket. Yeah. It was our- His inability to swallow a representation, literally, not even just figuratively, his inability Mm. to consume representations because he doesn't know what a representation is because he's- because he's not human and yeah he, he, we're just inconceivable to <laughs> like a creature from the outside because we are so caught up in language that's all we do. i mean you, if you're listening to this you're listening to a podcast all you're doing is just listening to language all day all i do is like everything is language yeah i work so i can buy a book so i can read words like yeah. all i care and about when you is drive language. you look at signs that are words yes everything when is I, words. like it's everything just is everything is language everything is words and there's always going to be a distance between reality and the way i understand it there's always going to be this gap and i think ultimately for me that's what nope this fantastic film is about yeah so to all the haters you're wrong yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to sum it all up i think nope was so dense it was so full of these ideas and concepts that represented you know like race capitalism animals human ideals of the world and i just yeah i don't agree with critics that think it was like empty or boring the boring part shocked me because that was also a movie that i needed to pee in and i didn't go (laughs) (laughs) because it was so good (laughs) and i didn't want to leave i just thought it was beautiful i thought it was a beautiful movie i thought it was beautifully articulated like not 
in terms of like the cinematography that that was too, but just like I felt spoken to. Like I really was picking up what it was putting down. And, you know, on the criticism of it not being as obvious in its politics as Get Out, I also just think a lot of white people like are lazy with Jordan Peele's films as well because they watched Get Out. This is like specifically a critique of white people who refuse to interrogate some of the racial politics. It's like Get Out tells you what to believe. Compared to this movie, it's on the nose. It's not on the nose, but compared to this movie, it's very obvious what it's saying about race and white people and the consumption of blackness. And I just feel like a lot of white people who watch Jordan Peele movies have watched Get Out and now, and it was like so great and so racially illuminating. And they just want all the movies to like spoon feed them like that. And I'm like, no, you don't get to watch this movie made by a black director and then get frustrated that he didn't convey race in a way that's easy to digest for you. <laughs> like, I don't know, man. That's my slight like complaint is I just think there is a lot of entitlement in the way people approach Jordan Peele films and especially nope because people went in there wanted to be spoon fed so they could feel woke afterwards right like people want to go there watch Mm. nope and then be able to go to work and be like oh yeah I fucking love the new Jordan Peele movie because I'm you know so woke and I understand race and then they didn't do that and they were like frustrated and offended and they were like angry about it and there was like a real disdain for nope from I feel like a lot of white critics who didn't get it and it's not it's okay to not get it but I find the frustration of oh it was a bad movie or I didn't like it because it's racial politics went immediately obvious to me is like kind of I just didn't like it and I felt like there was definitely like a weird vibe from some of the like white reviews that I read but yeah I thought nope was great and now you guys know why we thought it was great wow this was a really long recommendation segment Anyway, back to the topic. Yeah. <laughs> Let me introduce it. No. Done with follow-up. Uh, we're going to introduce our main topic for today. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, actually, we have some news about the Patreon for you guys today. So, for those of you who are signed up to our Patreon, you might have noticed that we didn't charge for the last two episodes after coming back from our hiatus. Because we were just trying to figure out where we wanted to go with it. Now that, you know, I mean, I work full-time and Mitch is pretty swamped with uni we don't really have the capacity for like extra you know bts content so we've kind of changed it up the tiers still exist the payment tiers but they no longer come with extra content so if you sign up to our patreon you do so because you want to support us Mm. because you want to donate to the cause you want to help us maintain our expenses for the nice software and equipment we use for this podcast but the content that you'll get back is just the podcast. Like, it's just purely voluntary. Like, if you want to leave the Patreon for that, that is so fine. Mm. No pressure at all to support us or donate to us. We will continue to do the podcast regardless. Like, you know, this is something we do because we love to do it. The Patreon exists for those people who would like to support us, but you don't have to. There's no pressure. And if you are considering joining for the first time, we do have a, a, a small backlog of extra videos that you can- From back in the day. Back in the day that you can sift through. But yeah, I mean, of course, no pressure to support. The only benefit is that it helps me pay for the annoying Adobe software, which is a monthly fee, which is some bullshit. Actually, fuck Adobe, but (laughs) I got to use Audition. Or Adobe sponsor us. That'd be so good. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, we retract the fuck Adobe, please, if you're listening. Yeah, well, of course, like we don't do this for money. It's just good to have some cash. Yeah, we don't have sponsors. I mean, we like to keep it independent just because... That way we can say whatever we want. We don't have to worry about brand safety. And that makes for, I think, some good integrity and honesty Mm -hmm. in our podcast. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you want to support our Patreon, if you want to support our discussions, uh, you can feel free to do so on our Patreon at patreon.com forward to Saliha 
Or you can do one-off donations at our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. But no pressure. And if you want to leave the Patreon, that is so fine. We still love you. Of course. And we will continue to thank people subscribed to our top tier, which for today, we have a very, very special thank you to both Johnny and Pia. So thank you so much for supporting. Still. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking, you could also talk about it with us. You could DM me on Instagram at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And you can follow my Instagram at Miscellania for discussions around film, books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.